This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Ernie LaPointe. He's the great-grandson of Sitting Bull and author of Sitting Bull, His Life and Legacy. I spoke with him on October 20, 2009, from his home in the Black Hills of South Dakota. This interview is included in our show, Reimagining Sitting Bull, Tatunka Iotake. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. I have tried to learn as much as I can through reading and conversations, but I, I, I really want you to correct me and guide me if I, um, if I say something wrong or if you need to add some nuance to it. Um, sure. Yeah. And, you know, for example, <laughs> I'd like to hear you say um, your great-grandfather's name, uh, Totanka, the way you say it. Tatunka Iotake. Say it again. Okay. Ta is a buffalo bull. Iotake is who sits down. Okay. That's his name, not sitting bull. Right. And how do you say um, the name of your people? You know, it looks on that Hong Papa. You probably sounds. Well, that's 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 the tribe of my great grandfather. Right. I can't say that's my tribe because I have many different uh, within me. Right. I have Dakota, Nakota, I have some Cheyenne, Arapaho, okay. and I have Hunkpapa, uh, mm-hmm. I have Itchazipcho. Uh, you know, so it's really hard to pinpoint okay. my one, so right. I just call myself a Lakota, because that's the only language I speak. I see. But my great-grandfather was a Hunkpapa. Okay. Um, Mitch, are you? I'm Oh, you are. Okay, good. <laughs> I see you're in there. <laughs> I thought he kept disappearing. Okay. Um, so, so what I'd like to do with you is, is really try to get a sense of your great-grandfather through your sense of him, your stories, um, as this man who was strong and spiritual and who was an elder in the... Um, who influenced Lakota lifeways, um, and I and I really and I and um, you know even as I use those words, you know part of what I want to do is understand from you as we go through the conversation what those what those words mean for you, what they really mean um, in your experience and in your life, and um, and I wonder just also just as we start, um, I mean this phrase Lakota lifeways is that a, is that a phrase you use? That's a phrase you'll see. I usually say Lakota way of life. Okay. Because it is a way mm-hmm. of life. Mm-hmm. And as you speak of my great grandfather, in his time, most of the the men and the women in them days, they lived this way, his way. Mm-hmm. He just devoted more time to understanding one ceremony which he performed, mm-hmm. which is the Sundance. Right. And he gave his his whole energy, life, sweat, blood, and tears to the Sundance tree and to the ceremony mm-hmm. for the survival of his children and his uh, people. So I want to talk some more about that um, in just a minute, I, especially about the Sundance and what it means that he was a Sundancer. Did, did you grow up in, in this Lakota way of life that was also his world? In the beginning, as far as back I can remember... When we was told these stories, when I was told these stories, I was told these stories behind closed doors mm. because 
We could not burn sage. We could not have this, you know, these items here like this. Because if you did, the federal government would, you know, arrest them. When you were a child? When I was a child growing up, I'd, I'd see this. We couldn't perform our ceremonies. We couldn't sing our songs, you know, our sacred songs. You know, we had powwow songs, but mm-hmm. as far as uh, performing s- sacred ceremonies, we couldn't do them. Because if we did, you went to jail. Mm-hmm. You know, they took you to prison for, you know, for, you know, living your spiritual way of life. And, you know, I always wondered when I was, you know, going through the school system, public school system, they always told me that this land was, you know, brought up under freedom of religion. How come we couldn't do them? We couldn't practice our religion until in the 80s right. when, when they finally signed it into law that we could do this, you know, where I can have my pipe sitting here like this and sing my sacred songs and perform my ceremonies, you know, be part of a ceremony performing. I'm not a medicine man or a spiritual leader. I'm just a a person who has a, a, a chanupa that I walk with it, you know, try to walk with it in a good way mm-hmm. to understand the, the way my great-grandfather walked with his. Your um, mother, Standing Holy, was his granddaughter. Is that right? Correct. No, Standing Holy was his daughter. Was his daughter right? right. That was your grandmother. Right. Did did um, did she talk to you about him, or did you did you? She passed away before I was even born. Right. And my mother was the one who who told me all these stories about uh, her grandfather. She did. Right. Mm-hmm. And she learned these stories that she told me from. Her mother, who was standing holy, and uh, her two grand uncles, which was uh, the the white man gave him the name John Sitting Bull. He was a deaf mute. His real name was Refuses them. And then the other one was Henry Little Soldier. We call him Grandpa Hand. You know, I don't know why they called him that, but there were two half brothers. They were they weren't Sitting Bull's sons. They were his stepsons, but they lived with him because they're. Mothers were sisters, which was uh, my great-grandmother seen by her nation and her sister, Four Robes. These were children from them. And they were with him, you know, when they were, I guess, teenage years. You know, they married into, they married with Sitting Bull. Both of them married him, so uh, he kind of, like, raised them as his own children, though. And so they knew the stories of things that happened when they were in Canada, and they were present in the cabin when they came to kill him, you know, mm. when they came to arrest him and how they murdered him, what, you know, what uh, mm. these stories my mother told me because they told him, her, and she told me, my sister and my niece and nephew. You know, um, I, was, I was reading somewhere that in, and again, I want you to always correct me if I don't, if I don't get this right, but in, that, that in sound... That that in Lakota there are sounds, drumming and singing that that builds body memory. And that if the elders sang for you, this becomes part of your body memory. That it's almost something that you almost genetically pass down. And as I read, um, as I've been kind of steeping myself in your in all the stories you tell, this oral history that you've carried forward, and also written some of it down now, I wondered if also that oral history feels that way. That it almost makes its way inside your DNA and that you carry it forward physically almost? Well, basically the oral histories, that's the survival of our culture. This is how we we survived this long. This is how I lived this long from the stories. And, and you're, you're right, it's kind of like embedded within your, mm-hmm. your soul. 
or in your spirit. And it seems like you already know when when these stories are being told to you. But the, the difference between what we're talking right now in this language, I was told these stories in my Lakota language. Mm-hmm. And the meanings go deeper. If you can understand Lakota language, what, these stories that was told to me go deeper. And as I was telling uh, your camera guys earlier before you arrived, I told them that... Uh, when you tell these stories about compassion, generosity, and fortitude, and all the, the the qualities of a person you're speaking about, then you 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 try to show through example what you mean. And so my mother showed me what compassion, generosity was, even though she couldn't really do the ceremonies because mm-hmm. she you know she would she would end up in jail. So, but she did it behind. You know, closed doors. We lived on. I was I was born and raised on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, just west of Ogallala. There, up until I was probably about five, six years old, we moved to Rapid City, South Dakota, and and it was even harder then because you know she really couldn't uh, you know burn sage or or sweet grass and stuff like this because the fear of you know the police catching her. But the stories that she told me. It, it's, it resonated within my soul, my heart, my spirit, my mind to to hold, you know. And mm-hmm. and I kept them in, in my heart and my soul and for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, when before she passed away, she swore me to secrecy. She says, you do not tell anybody you're related to Sitting Bull or you don't tell these stories. Because at that time, if you told the stories about the Battle of Little Bighorn, what she was told, or any other little story... You know the government historians. I mean, the historians historians will will come after you because you're telling something that's not right. what they're telling. Right. So I kept these, you know, in my heart. And then she passed away, and I didn't know how to how to do this until '92 when I had an aunt come forward and told me. She said, "It's time for you to come out of the shadows and and let the world know that there are descendants, direct blood descendants of of Tatunka Iotake still living." today, and they're not enrolled at Standing Rock Indian Reservation. She mm-hmm. says, tell them where you're enrolled at in Pine Ridge. And she said, from then on, she says, you need to tell the stories that your mother told you. Okay. So it's like she opened the floodgates. I had to come out and, you know, I've had many people try to dispute me, you know, in, in many of my stories because they don't, they don't compare to the his stories. Uh, record of what they wrote, you know, the books are written about my grandfather. So, but this is oral history. Mm-hmm. This is oral stories, and I tried to I tried to live it as I told the stories. Mm-hmm. You know, and I tried to follow in the footsteps of my great grandfather. As I have a, my 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 spiritual items, right. and I'm also went to the ceremonies, Sundance, visions, and. I speak my language, you know, and this is how I communicate with my spirits is, you know, I talk to them in Lakota. Right. And, and I always looked at how difficult this life was in the days when my great-grandfather was living it. But we always have humor. Hmm. You know, we always laugh. And we always tell stories and make each other laugh so we can, you know, n- not let the burden of uh, the tough everyday life bring you down. And even now, you know, even if we have the comforts of electricity, this house, right. cars to drive in, it's still difficult for me because of 
of the misunderstandings of the non-natives. Right. They don't know who we are. Right. And and I and I and I know what you're talking about. You're asking me these questions because to get to know who we are, you have to know from our existence, our examples, and our stories of who we are. That we're not noble savages or bloodthirsty right. killers and all this. That we lived a spiritual way of life. This is what my grandfather lived. He did not hate the army when it came after him. You know, he just wanted to be left alone to live on this, right. like his ancestors before him did. And nobody owned the land. Right. He didn't fence off an acre of land and said, this is mine and don't come on it thing. You know, you just, you know, you, you respected the land. You respected all every living thing. This is a spiritual way of life. This is how it's ingrained within you. It's within your your DNA, I guess you might say. It's yeah. with me. And through my life, I've always, you know, looked, felt that. You know, I've lived all over the U.S. and all over the world. I was in the military. I was in Korea, Germany, Vietnam. But still, I always knew somewhere in my heart that you had to live with respect to the earth. You know, what you do in the in the biography that you that you wrote down of your um, of your great grandfather, um, you started at the end of his life which is which is the parts of his life um through which he became famous or infamous um as you say in american history and his story was told many different ways and and part of your work is retelling that story um so you started it with that but then you moved on to the to his life and to that person and i'd kind of like to also take that path today so let's you know let's talk about the battle of little bighorn and, um, you know, how he died. Um, and then let's talk about who he was and how he lived and that legacy that you live with now. Um, I think I, I'm not sure that I really completely understood until I started digging into this that, uh, you know, someone wrote um, that the Battle of Little Bighorn in its time was the biggest news story since the Civil War. That's the way the press treated it. And that Sitting Bull came out of that as public enemy number one. Um, and, and, then the, and, and in fact, it was a great victory for him, but, it, but all, it was the beginning of, you know, it was portrayed as a victory or a defeat of Custer's army, but in fact, it became the spiral of tragedy um, for him and his people. Um, and in that latter... That that end of his life, he was in the Black Hills, where we're sitting today, where you live now, in this area, um, which is sacred for the Lakota. And I guess he helped negotiate that Treaty of 1868 that set aside the Black Hills as Lakota territory. Is that right? No, he never did. Oh. Because, uh, you know, he always, my mother always emphasized to me, you know, from from what he said, he always said that, Trust had to be earned, and the Americans never attempted to earn his trust. That's right. why he never attended these treaty meetings okay. of 51 and 68 because of that. Mm-hmm. And he, he also did not trust the written treaties that, there were, you know, that were portrayed. So it was even before the Battle of Little Bighorn, the division between the Lakota nations already happened mm-hmm. because a lot of these guys went and accepted the treaties that were written. Right. And then you have these who didn't accept it. And the ones who didn't attend or accept these ways were, were branded as hostiles. 
which you know in 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 the American history they always try to make you look bad if you didn't agree with the government's ways so but see this is this is what I was getting back to is that the visionaries you know he was one, and when he was young, I said this in my d v d in my book is they called him Hunkeshni. Hunkeshni is, you know, kind of a slow right. person. You know, he he didn't really act right away. But what they didn't understand at the time was he was sort of like a, you know, I guess he was a gifted child hmm. who already knew these qualities that came to him, you know, at a young age. His slowness was a thoughtfulness, right. a right. care. His, 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 he always analyzed things before right. he did it, which... You know, it wasn't uh, many children his age would do stuff like that. When they were six, five, six, seven years old, and this was this was his path to understanding the spiritual Lakota way of life at a young age. And throughout his life, he devoted his whole existence to the sacred way of life mm-hmm. of the Lakota. And by the time he was a teenager. He already had the qualities and understanding of many things that grown men were seeking for the rest of their life, trying to understand. He already understood and lived it. So this was this was you, one of the. What do you think of when you say that? What kinds of things? The generosity, the compassion, the fortitude of of, of his courage. You know, the courage of of how to do things without. Uh, I guess you might say confusing people with uh, his actions you know he wasn't a glory seeker he was, he didn't hunt he didn't he didn't do things for the for the art of glory or 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 boasting his accomplishments and that's why if you see his photographs there you always see him with with just two feathers one up and one kind of slightly to the right right as dyed red that that dyed red feather is a representation for his wounds that he received in battle, you know, in combat. You know, if he something happened to him, and then the other is, is the first coup he ever counted. And you know, he he could have had a headdress that had a trailer all the way to the ground hmm. for all the coups that he accounted. But he was a humble man. What do you mean the coups that he accounted? Well, see, uh, this is this is another theory that was mis- misconstrued by the by the historians. Is you know, they always say we were warlike. You know, they always call us the Sioux. The Sioux was right. warlike people in Northern Plains. Well, oh. you know, we, we did do a lot of skirmishes with the Tchokat. You know, like I was telling Nancy earlier, I says, enemy is a very harsh word. You know, enemy is, is, a, is, a, is a word that Tchokat doesn't mean. Tchokat is an adversary okay. on the plains. You know, like, uh, like say, the crows or... Santa Boynes or the the Arikara, Blackfoot, Flatheads, you know, they were adversaries to us. And, you know, you meet them in a field out there somewhere and, and you know, you, you attack each other. But you had a stick, it's called a coup stick, shaped like a little bend on the end. You had that, or you know, if you didn't have one of those, you know, a, a stick would do, or, you know, a little lance or a shield or an, a, a bow. And you ride up to, and if you can hit the, the your adversary anywhere, you touch him with it, or you can whack him with it before he hits you, 
you didn't kill him, but you you touched him with this. You counted coup on him. You know, you you I see. you took his you you embarrassed him in front of his other friends. Mm-hmm. You didn't kill him, and this is where the honors come from, with the eagle feathers that you wear in your hair. You okay. wear them straight up in your hair. This is this is the this is one of the the main purposes in our in our existence. As not you know that's not warlike. That's just being. It's like a big game that you play. You know, it's like a big tag game of some kind. But you're always trying to embarrass your adversary in front of his his friends. Okay. So this is this is what they mis they misunderstood again as being warlike and didn't kill each other. Because another thing about killing is they said if you you know the Lakota believed that if you killed your adversary, you know that's why we didn't believe in killing. You always think about his family. Okay. He might have really? a mother, father, a wife, children. If you kill them, who's going to take care of them? You know, so the, you didn't. That's why you kind of cooing each other. You didn't. You didn't go out there to kill somebody for any kind of glory. But if you did, the eagle feather hangs straight down the back. That's the seventh honor of an eagle. You know, the first honor is straight up. Mm-hmm. So this is this is one of the the misunderstandings of our culture, of our people, you know, of our, our, you know, not just the Lakota, but all nations, mm-hmm. that we live the spiritual way of life. You know, it's a, it's a morning you get up and you pray with this pipe. And mm-hmm. they're put together like this in a teepee. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's not, it's not a, you know, you go to church on Sunday thing. It's, it's an everyday occurrence. I think a point that you stress um, that again I don't is not something that came through in the popular history for many generations was that was precisely this point that this that this Black Hills area is sacred territory was sacred territory for Sitting Bull and um, that his resistance of the government the U.S. government was not um, about territory but about this as a sacred inheritance of his people. Um, that there was a spiritual dimension to it, not just a, wasn't just a, a, a power struggle. Right. It still is, the Black Hills. You know, what, what these houses on top of the hill, they're just, you know, on top. It's the spiritual significances of what these Black Hills are. You know, even, even from outer space, they took pictures of the Black Hills and it looked like a human heart. Really? They said it's the heart of the, the Turtle Island. We call this the Turtle Island because of... It's not the America or it's not, you know, the the North American continent or anything. It's the Turtle Island to us. Mm-hmm. The Black Those Hills? Us, no, the, the, the country. Oh, The right. U.S., as right. they call it. So, you know, the, the heart of this country is just Black Hills. Mm-hmm. That's why it's sacred to us. I see. And it was a burial, a lot of burial grounds around this area, you know, where when when people passed away they would bring their remains out here and you know were on scaffolds you know but before Custer's men came up you know I was told this in the DVD it was told to me through a spiritual man he told me that they had two guys come out here and remove all the the, the remains off of these scaffolds and they burned them mm. you know so that and all their stuff that were there because they were they were told that uh that the non-natives would come in the area and they would take the stuff, the bodies, the bones, even the, you know anything that was there. So they they took it all out of, 
out of context on, and so they won't be able to take them as, you know, studying or whatever, souvenirs. Hmm. They call them grave robbers, you know, more or less. And then the, when in, um, in the fall of 1890, which is when your great-grandfather died, uh, there was a, again, part of the conflict, uh, or at least the, the pretense for that invasion, um, um, was also a spiritual movement uh, which centered around um, the ghost dance. Would you call it the ghost dance? How would you describe it? Which was well, from from what I was told, this didn't start out as as what what it came out with over here. Mm-hmm. And what I learned was it came from Nevada. This guy named Jack Wilson. He was a Paiute, half Paiute and half uh, white. And he took the name Wavoka, and he came out with this. He, he combined his Paiute religion with Christianity, hmm. and that's where he said he had this vision by looking into his hat of a dance called a spirit dance, which was going to unite all humans together in peace. This was the purpose of his dance, is what they say. And all religions came out there to, hmm. you know, to look at it. Even the Mormons, you know, from Utah came right. out there to see what, what this guy was doing. And I think and then from the Lakota, you had Kicking Bear and Short Bull go down there, and they checked it out. And they were taught what this dance was about. But between there and here, you know, they were on horseback, so they had many stops. And by the time they got to the western part of Wyoming, into the uh, the Arapahoes, they brought this, it, from the spirit dance, it became the ghost dance. I see. And I think the purpose of the ghost shirts it's from the the Mormons had the underwear, you know, that mm-hmm. protects them from... Uh, it's part of their sacred yeah. ritual. And uh, this is what the I think the the idea of the ghost shirts come from, where they said no bullet or anything could pierce the shirt. And by the time it got up here to South Dakota, it was completely a different, um, I guess you might say, a different concept of what the what the original spirit dance... And it, it, it became a ritual that was um, bringing the Lakota people together um, and that it seemed threatening to the U.S. government. And I want to say, you, you talk about the Wasiku, is that how you say it? Washiju. Washiju, which would be the, the Americans. Americans, the white government. Um, and and that, uh, and in fact it wasn't, and it was, there was this Indian agent, James McLaughlin, who's quite a... Uh, dramatic figure in all of this, um, who sent the Indian police to your great grandfather's, uh, to your great grandfather, and in this skirmish that followed, um, he was killed. Well, there's so many different, you know, avenues. I guess you might say that that mm-hmm. led up to this. Mm-hmm. I think they were trying to to eliminate him, uh, my great grandfather before, you know, before this. This was four years after the. Battle right. of Little Bighorn. Right. I think I think it all came out with Sheridan. Phil Sheridan. Mm-hmm. He wanted to, you know, take him out, and you know, it just you know, it was all orders coming in from Washington at that time. It was the Indian Affairs, and they don't call it the Bureau of Indian Affairs then. Mm-hmm. And there was there was much communication between 
Washington and McLaughlin Standing Rock Agency about how to, you know, take Sitting Bull out because it was a, it was kind of like a power struggle, more or less. You know, this is a power struggle thing from McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. It wasn't with Sitting Bull, but it was with McLaughlin because he wanted to control the, the Hukpapa people up there on Standing Rock. And Sitting Bull was just there to oppose everything he did because mm-hmm. he didn't understand or believe in, in, in the government system. And it just kind of led up, and then the ghost dance came in in 1890. And at this time when the ghost dance came in, the people were losing hope yeah. of surviving. You know, So Sitting Bull didn't believe in this ghost dance, but he allowed his people to do it. They had to have hope to survive somehow. You know, so, mm-hmm. But he started getting out of hand. You know, within a short few months, you know, it was getting. They were doing it frantically, day and night, seven days a week, and he didn't know how to stop it. You know, he he figured maybe was we can do this with Red Cloud. Yeah. He, he never met Red Cloud, or he never really conversed with the man before. But he was going to go do a, a meeting with him. That's that was one of the good reasons why they should arrest him because they were going to arrest him anyway. It was just uh, they moved up the date to get him on, and ended up getting killed December 15th. And it, you've said that you um, have very strongly uh, felt the message um, that it's important for you to, 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 to say that, you're, that Sitting Bull was not a ghost dancer but a sun dancer. Right. So I'd like for you to explain to me, you know, what, what all that holds for you to say that he was a sun dancer? What what really does that mean? Well, the sun dance is a, is one of the ceremonies that came with our sacred pipe, or chanupa Waka. and it's it's a it's basically most cultures around the world have a similar event or ceremony. You know that that constitutes basically the same thing that mm. that the sun dance is about. The Sundance is about the survival of a culture, and you're, you're doing this for the people. You don't do it for yourself. You're doing this for the people. You give your blood, sweat, tears, and you give all your energy. There are physical so, piercings right. that are involved in it. And everything mm-hmm. you do out there is for the for survival of the people, survival of the food sources, which is the four-legged, the buffalo, the deer, the antelope, whatever that you use to survive, your people survive. You need you do this to 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 keep that going. And you you try to they they say when you when you're ready to do this, to commit to the Sundance, you should be able to uh understand or, or to get rid of all the the wild oats or however you want to say. Hmm. Understand, you know, the wildness, the craziness and whatever. When you reach that certain plateau, they say you're usually around 30 years old. So you have a level of maturity. Right. Mm-hmm. And you start to understand what your life here is about. And most of the time, a lot of the warriors don't make it to 30. You know, they would mm-hmm. end up, well, not warriors, but the men, the young men. And um, they usually don't survive. Something usually happens to them or, you know, they, you know, as the onslaught of the, the, the Washichu coming into our area. They started shooting each other and killing each other, and and the Troka became, they caught on to this, and they started killing each other instead of Kanku anymore. So mm-hmm. there's the survival of the, the the young men 
just a few reached the age of 30 or more to, to be able to turn their life to the Sundance. And uh, with me, I didn't reach that maturity until I was in my 40s. I turned 41, I think, when I first Sundance. So, you know, it took me 40 years. I had to go through the trials, tribulations, mistakes, my own merits in my life, and my own understandings of many things before I turned my life to my culture again. Mm. And a lot of it, most of my, my years were were going through post-traumatic stress disorder from Vietnam, mm. you know, flashbacks and, and all these nightmares I was having. And, and I was trying to self-medicate myself through alcohol and drugs and all this, you know. But I've, eventually I turned my life back around to my culture to understand why I'm having these things. And through ceremony, they tell me it's not a mental thing, as the VA is trying to tell me. Mm. It's a spiritual wounding. And we had a way to protect ourselves, and we didn't do that. So that's when my understanding just started coming back. As you were saying, it's in my, it's in, it was in my genes or DNA. Mm-hmm. I already knew. What do you mean when you say we had a way to protect ourselves and we didn't do that? See, this is where in the movies, you know, you, you turn on the old Western channel here, and you see Charlton Heston or somebody sitting there going, oh, they got their war, the Sioux have their war paint on, okay? Right. That's, you know, it's not war paint, it's a protection. And every individual who goes on to a, a ceremony, who does a purification ceremony or whatever, you, you go through a, a process, I guess you might say, through either through purification or through a humbleccia, which is, I guess, the closest you could say is a vision quest. And at that certain time, they show you some colors in how to apply on yourself. So if you if you see most guys out there, you know, and back in the time when Sitting Bull was around, you see these guys with the certain paint markings on their faces and their bodies. It's not war paint. It's it's a protection for your spirit. Hmm. And they tell us that our bodies, we have a body, we have a mind, we have a heart, and we have a spirit. These four things make up your who you are. And your body... Your mind and your heart understands life, death, and tragic events. But your spirit is the vulnerable part of all, th- all four. So we had to protect that to keep it from, you know, mm-hmm. you don't just put this on just for, you know, going on raids or anything. Mm-hmm. On the buffalo hunt, you know, like you're out there on the buffalo hunt and your friend falls off his horse and million buffalo run over him. What's you going to be finding just pieces of him? And it's a traumatic event. It's more than the human mind can experience. Your spirit will be ruined, you know, will be scarred. But if you have your protection on, you understand it. Your spirit is protected, but your mind, heart, understand life and death. And when you come back that evening or whenever you came back, and then you're going to be around for a day, you'll do a ceremony, you wipe off the paint, and you're still a whole person. Is your spirit protected even if if you experience bodily harm? Yes, everything. Mm-hmm. Everything is protected. So it's it's a traumatic mm-hmm. event that your spirit is protected with this. And and when you said that just a minute ago, did you also mean that you realized that you'd gone through some very hard parts of your life without right. without availing yourself of that protection and that knowledge? Right. That's mm-hmm. that was one of the reasons why a lot of us have post traumatic stress because we did not, you know, protect our spirit. So. 
I think this is a really wonderful way also to to get a very deep sense of 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 Sitting Bull's legacy of your great grandfather's legacy because I want I, I sense that it was also at that point in your life when you had you had really undergone a lot of traumatic experiences um, uh, that you then that you reached out for this spiritual legacy of um, which he helped shape and deepen and influence is. Is that is, would you say that you discovered things or that you understood things about him and about his spirituality um, at that point that you hadn't understood before? Well, it's it's. I think you know what we were talking about earlier. It's in our genes mm-hmm. or it's in our DNA. We just when I first went into my first purification ceremony, things started coming to me. It's just like I remembered things. Which I never experienced, if you, if you know what I mean. Right, you're saying it's more like a memory than yeah, something that you yeah. learn. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's like in your DNA. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you already know, mm-hmm. but you have to experience it. You know, more or less, you have to you have to go through the motions of of it to 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 clarify it in your own heart and mind, your spirit. That so it just comes naturally. You know, nobody tells you you gotta do this, you gotta do this. It just comes. You know, even though sometimes it's unknown, you know, because I lived in in this world here. And, you know, I went to war. I've been all over, you know. and But some of the things that, that I experienced through my ceremonies, it was kind of, you know, because I was, I mean, I didn't believe in any religion when, you know, before I came back this way, you know. Uh, you know, a lot of, you know, because I think a lot of it was when I was a child, they used to try to force my mom and dad to go to church. Hmm. You know, the agents would come to our house and on Sunday and say, you got to go to church. And and down inside me somewhere as a child growing up, I said, why do these people want to force me to go? You know, I sh- should not just want to go. You know, I want to go someplace like this. And I would go there and, and they would, you know, they would, you know, bang your ears, you know, with, with words and preaching and all this. And it kind of turned me off. You know, and ever since then, I didn't really. Did it even make you worry about Lakota spirituality? Well, I, I did, but see, we couldn't. We couldn't. You couldn't, couldn't go there it. anyway. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just kind of believed in myself. Though that's that's I think that's the main thing of my survival this long is I believed in myself for some reason. You know, there's a reason why I'm here, and you know, I was sleeping under bridges and hanging out with a bunch of Vietnam vets. I was homeless, you know. Mm. I mean, I had a home. I had a job. I just couldn't deal with the with the flashbacks, nightmares. My wife at that time wouldn't understand me. Mm. So I left. I went, I went, and when I hit this, on the street there in California, I ran into a bunch of guys that were Vietnam vets. And we just kind of joined up, and we just kind of lived in the streets. You know, we lived in shelters, and we lived in little areas where, they had names for them, just like fire bases back in Vietnam. We took care of one another, you know, and then we traveled the train, the rails and stuff, different cities, towns. And But I always felt in my heart that there was something that I had to do and it was not living on the streets or, or you know, you know, smoking weed and, you know, numbing my mind, you know, because yeah. when, when I numbed it, it was, you know, it, it, it I could function. You know, I mean... There's there's a debate right now going on with this marijuana thing. To me, I used it. You know, I mean, I used it to numb 
the memories. I mean, I could walk the streets and I could talk to people like I'm talking to you now without, uh, you know, without this, this intrusion of these thoughts from the war coming into my head. And I could work. I could do jobs, you know, but... And then I, I figured out a way to to pass these urine tests because, huh. you know, I had to work someplace where they had to have this until I got busted for it, you know, and then I had to, you know, I didn't know which way to turn. So I turned to my spiritual ways. This is mm-hmm. how I ended up getting back this way. And in my first ceremony, the spirit told me this. I had a wounded spirit. But he said he will help me. I had to make tobacco offerings to him, tobacco ties. So I did this, and and he told me, he said, when you walk out of the lodge, he says, you you have to do certain things, he says, and I'll be there with you. He says, your healing will start. And he says, your healing may not be complete until you make the journey back to the spirit world. But he says, you'll start to see a little improvement, you know. And I still have this, you know. It's just that I know how to control it now. I have, that's why I have my wife. I don't leave home without her. Okay, wise <laughs> man. Because <laughs> I, I told her many times. I said, if if you feel, you, I mean, I told us you understand when I'm starting to go off the edge. Mm-hmm. When I start, the anger starts to rage. I says, just tap me on my leg or touch me. I says, now we'll bring back in my back of my memory my Sundance while I was I made it to Sundance Street when I was a Sundancer. My first Sundance. I says, I made the promise holding my pipe, holding the tree at the Sundance, that I will never harm another living thing on this earth as long as I live. And I says, but I have this anger and rage. And that was a promise that was very difficult to keep because I have anger issues at times, you know, and I'm trying to turn them for the good, mm. you know, to, for the positive, the energy, to turn it to positive instead of negative. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, you know, with myself, it's a difficult life. And I understand my great-grandfather's frustrations with the government. And he's trying to live with the earth and get the people to understand that they should understand his people's way of living with the earth. Whereas with me, it's it's trying to survive, you know. And, and then individuals like yourself and others around the world asking me these questions about my spiritual way and, I think the tide is starting to turn a little mm. bit to people understand how we survived this long as, as natives. Right. And we had to have faith. We had to have conviction. We had to understand that there's a, there's a, eventually there's going to be a time when the earth is going to be the, the victor in all this, not us. Mm. So maybe a sobering thought, dependent on how we behave up to that point, human beings, I mean. Yeah, and that's another one of the things that I always wonder. You know, the the Europeans have been here since 1492, as they say, the year. They've been here, all this technology and everything has moved forward except one, one, one part, and that's racism. Hmm. They have not understood it. And, you know, it's... It's very simple to create racism. You know, and my mother always told me as a kid growing up, pondered it to me every day, never to to dislike or say racist remarks back to anybody who said them to me. This is when we're still living on the reservation. 
And I didn't know what she was talking about. She had a hole in my hand. She's doing, people are going to hate you for this. And I said, what's wrong with mm. my hand? And she said, for the color of your skin mm. and for your hair, she said. And I didn't know this, you know, until we came to Rapid City. And then then, mm. then it was like a, a avalanche, you know. I mean, just boom, it just overwhelmed me, you know. And But her words keep ringing in my ear. Mm. You know, you cannot do this, you know. She always told me, she says, you've got to have... You have to break that cycle in yourself, or in your. Well, I try. I try to. I try mm-hmm. to live that way, mm-hmm. you know. And I know I met people who, you know, in the military, I got pushed pushed over for rank because you know I would never got the rank because of my who I am. And when I was in Vietnam, they always you know most uh, combat vets you meet they're natives. They always end up in the, in the infantry unit. They always end up being point man, you know. Mm. Or, or they always look at you as some kind of a lucky charm or something, you know. And I, I could never understand that, you know, hmm. because I think, I think in a sense that some of us who were in in combat, we always believed in our intuition, our spiritual guides that help us through certain things. And when you go to war, you can't fight a war out of a textbook or out of a rule book. You have to follow your intuition, your gut feeling to survive. And that's why I'm here, you know. I mean, I follow my own intuition and my own yeah. gut feeling to make it. What's really striking as I'm listening to you talk is clearly we live in a different age than those days, and you you, you don't have the struggle, the the great battle that that your great grandfather was part of, but you've lived with so many echoes of it into our time. Yeah, well, I guess I guess. Uh, I try to capitalize on it, you know, on that. And and I always got to try to do this as truthfully and as honestly as I can because I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to disappoint my ancestor. And, you know, not only him, but I have others. And as far as um, our knowledge as Lakota spiritual people is, we know that one day we're all going to complete the circle of life. You know, we see four faces, and then we make the journey back to the spirit world. If we if we live the way that we 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 should accomplish things for the Creator, we know that there's a place that our spirit's going to journey to, and it's a better place than we we came from there. And it's the closer, the older you get, the recollections come back to you also. It was a great place that you came from as a spirit and inhabited this body. And as you start to make that circle back around to mm-hmm. the starting point, you start to remember it was a really beautiful place, and, and that's where your your ancestors are. I wonder, um, did your return to the ceremonies and to your sense of your Lakota spiritual identity, did that coincide with... Um, with rediscovering, well, you know, you you said there was a moment where you, for years, you kept a silence about the stories you'd been told about Sitting Bull, and then, and then at some point, it was time to tell them. Um, did those things coincide? Did they, did they um, influence each other? Your your own spiritual journey and this kind of public journey you've been on with that legacy. Well, yeah, because uh, I think you have to prepare yourself. You have to be ready. And I think 
you know, I always thought I was ready. You know, many times because through my through my life, I always sit around like this and talk to, you know, when I was in the military, guys would be talking about our people, I'd be talking about my grandfather or crazy horse and all this. And many times I almost bit blood out of my tongue because I wanted to say something. Hmm. But I, I know I couldn't do it because I always felt what my mother said. She told me, she said, I asked her, I said, why wouldn't you let me? say anything and she said because your life will never be the same and I never understood what she meant by that but now I do because there's a time I think there's a time when when you have to do something and my time wasn't ready until the time came when my aunt said come do this and the reason she said that was because she said the people of Standing Rock Indian Reservation are commercializing and capitalizing on your great-grandfather's image and name. And she says, this is not what your mother would wanted them to do. She's, so that's when she told me, come on. Mm-hmm. She said, set the record, tell the truth about what you know. So I came out and do this, but I'm not doing it in in, in a way that that I want to create the division even more worse. I, I wonder. I want to try to, like I said in the end of my book, before the healing can start, you have to feel first feel the pain. Mm-hmm. And I think the the painful memories of, of what the natives that betrayed my grandfather did, their ancestors did, has to come to a head, and then they're going to start to realize. Okay, maybe hopefully, they'll realize that it's time for us to to come together, and unite as a people again mm-hmm. and because there's so much misunderstanding of our people that we need to now unite together and and show the world and, and the united states people of the united states that we're not the uh the people that we were portrayed as or we were made into images as right and 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 as you've written and said um sorry trent Five minutes? Okay. Yeah, okay. This is really wonderful. Um, okay. This is a, I, my measure of a great conversation is when I don't, I don't have to look at my notes. We're just having... What? Oh, you want me to take that off? Okay. I keep seeing you look at me. I'll take mine off, uh, mine is bad. It makes a noise. This guy's kind of—he's trying to be like that old sergeant I knew back in Nam. Take it, take everything that jingles out of your pocket. Yeah, he, he's bossy. <laughs> so tie your dog tags up. They're making noise. No, I grew up in Oklahoma. Um, in all these towns with. Within, with tribal names and, in, you know, Shawnee, Tecumseh. Yeah. I have a little tiny bit of Cherokee blood from my, great, my, my great-grandmother. But, I know, but nobody really knew the story. They knew that much. So uh, where at in Oklahoma? Shawnee. Oh, Shawnee. Pottawatomie County. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's where I got out of the Army at, Fort Sill. Oh, yeah. Okay, I thought I was trying to do that. Um, and one other thing is, uh, I've got a couple of things I just need to re- retake. Okay, take okay, 
All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I wonder, um, on the one hand, there, there have been many histories written of, um, and especially at an earlier time in American history, histories written about Sitting Bull. And that story needs to be retold and opened up. And that's partly what you're doing. You also, I'm also curious about, um, you know, in our time, there's a lot of fascination, cultural fascination, with what people call Native American spirituality. And even though uh, there's certainly a positive intent in that, uh, I think you probably also find yourself working against stereotypes and cliches and misunderstandings that flow out of that, where people think they get something or they know something. So I, I wanted to ask you, this is what I want to ask you, as you have delved into your grandfather's legacy and great-grandfather's legacy and talked about it and, and maybe understood it, even the same stories you knew as a child, understood them differently because you're you're remembering them and retelling them at a different stage in your life. What, what do you know about him that you understand about him that you'd like other people to understand by way of understanding this spiritual world that he not only inhabited but helped shape? And you know, maybe tell me some stories that for you are um, really important about who he was and what he represented about spirituality. Well, my main understanding and, and and what I pursued was a Sundance. You know, this is... See, most history books that are written about my grandfather was said that he was a chief or medicine man. Right. Which he was, both. But through ceremony, I was informed that he would like to be recognized as a Sundancer. Okay. So I don't know if I told you about our, our organization. It's called Sitting Bull Family Foundation Incorporated. Our logo... It's going to be on there, which my friend drew. It's a beautiful logo. It's an it's a image of a sun dancer with the ropes coming off into this. Hmm. And, you know, so far the other board member and our daughters have said maybe we should explain what this logo means. And my, my thing is, my, my only explanation is, I said, if the people don't understand what this logo is, you know, you know, why, why would they be wanting to look into my my website or into into my organization? Because this is an image of a Sundance. Well, describe it to me. It's it's in the Sundance. You have these reefs of sage on your wrists and your ankles and around your head, and you have your eagle feathers up there, and, and you're a Sundancer, and then. You had the piercing on the fourth day that pierced you on the front mm-hmm. to the tree. And the, the two ropes or two thongs are going up into the tree there. And this image is like that. So you remain connected to the tree? Right. So you're, you're connected to the tree until you, you pull loose. And then... Uh, and I noticed that you, you, when you write about Sundance, you say, you, you say the whole, you do the whole translation. It's dancing while gazing at the sun. Right. Is that right? Right. Mm-hmm. And I've had guys email me here lately asking me, they said, you know, scientists and 
doctors and tell all you not to look not directly to look at the sun. sun. Yeah. And I tell them, you know, you have to have faith and belief in, in what we do. This is our way of life. You know, I mean, there's other cultures around the world other that practice their spiritual ways, religious ways, and what they do. I don't question them because if they have faith and belief in there, in what they're doing, the things they'll understand the purpose of what this is about. And this is our way of understanding what we do this for, is we gaze at the sun. Because the sun is a life giver to our planet, to our life, to who we are. And we do this, we give our, we give our whole body, as I was telling you earlier, our blood, sweat, tears, and we even take the, take the, the, I guess, the real aspect of looking into the sun, where most people won't look at the sun. Like right now, I, I can't look at the sun like anybody else, but in the sun dance, you're in that circle of this arena, and you're, you're looking at the sun, and it's it's like looking at this light here. It doesn't really harm you. Are you looking through the tree then also? Well, you can look at the tree, yeah, but Sometimes. most of the time is you're looking at the sun. And that's how he got the vision of the soldiers falling into camp. And see, this is, I think this is the purpose, the real reason why they call him, the you know, the the guy in charge of Little Bighorn, which nobody was in charge of the Little Bighorn. Mm-hmm. And, but he had the vision of soldiers falling to camp, which was a vision of Custer's command. I see. And again, the the historians twisted it, turned it around and all this. And then in, in the book and in the DVDs that I did, I had to clarify what the historians were you know, Utley wrote, Bastella wrote, why my great-grandfather didn't participate in the battle. And, you know, I, I said in there, what, you know, they, they never came to out talk to the relatives, the descendants of Sitting Bull, of why a lot of things. There's a lot of why. He stayed with this. the women and children, is that right? He, well, because he's... the reason why he didn't come was he, he went into his teepee, he got his, he prepared himself, he put his paint on, protection. And he got his shield, and he got his weapons, and he came out. Just as he came out of his teepee, his mother was right there, her holy door. And she stopped him. She said to him, she said, son, she says, you don't need to go prove yourself anymore to these people. She says, you have done everything possible for these people. She said, you fed them, you protected them, and you sacrificed yourself at the tree for them. She said, it's now time to let the younger men show their worth. So, she says, you mm-hmm. have a wife or children and non-combatants, you need to take care of them. So okay. that's what he did. It seems to me this is an example where what people wanted him to be, even somebody like Stanley Vestal, this historian, that wasn't his real name, what was his name? Campbell? Walter Campbell. Walter Campbell. When he wanted to tell the real story, he wanted to take the story out of the the, the official U.S. government story. But um, still, people people translated their cultural categories onto the Lakota culture, to the Sioux culture of Sitting Bull. So, I mean, I've also... So, like, they wanted to... They thought he should be, like, a general leading his troops, right? Right. right. And you're saying that wasn't... 
No, that, that wasn't, wasn't his that role. Was. And I've also understood, and please, you know, tell me if this is right, that even this idea of the chief of leadership that that that, that it was that there was a notion of hierarchy that really was transposed by the by the whites onto the Lakota that that he was a leader but it wasn't it wasn't quite so simple um as it was portrayed and this may be a good example that he should act like a general but well see the 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 chief you know is itracha we call it in Lakota it was it's like nobody really wanted to be in itracha you know you didn't really want to be in that position because it's not like the president of the United States or a king of England or something. It's if you if they chose you, you know, you didn't campaign for the office. Mm-hmm. It's just that they looked at you, what you did in your life. They looked at your compassion, your generosity, your courage and, and how you were to all living things. And if you portrayed yourself in in a knowledge and then there's one aspect that most historians chose not to put in there or anybody spoke about was the wisdom of the woman. Hmm. The women had had tremendous wisdom, and they, especially the elder ones, the grandmas, the mothers. And a man spent most of his life, his uh, most of his life, trying to acquire just a fraction of this woman's wisdom, because they knew how to do things, you know, without even question. Or a man, you get a dozen of them together and they still couldn't figure out how to do something because it wasn't in our in our way. So you had two sides. You had the male side, you had the female side, you know, the yin and yang thing. The male was a protector, he was a provider. And a woman took care of the teepee, the family, and, and knew how to do all these chores. And she performed them. You know, and where the man was a protector. So in other words, to become a, a chief, as you say, you have to understand a little of this wisdom of this this female side, the compassion, the wisdom, of and the generosities and all this, because man didn't wasn't inbred with that. We had to learn that, and a lot of that comes from the woman side. So, in other words, to become a, if you become chosen to be a chief, you had to exhibit these same kind of qualities, and they would have counsel. You have the leaders, you know, that were chosen there. They were chosen because of what their compassion and who they were. They exhibited their examples. And they made decisions there. They tried to make the decisions wisely as a woman. Hmm. Okay, now, if they made the decision to do something, there's, the women weren't there. They were in the, somewhere else. But they always had a little representative listening into the, the talk. And he would go take the decision, the final decisions to the women, the elders, elderly women and they would tell this is what they came up with and if the women liked it it was a go if the women didn't like it it was a no it didn't go because the, you know so, then they started doubting who made this decision who made this you know because their wisdom isn't there and you, you're there for the people you're always the poorest man in the village if somebody needed something the whole village was there you might have a couple hundred people you're there for every one of them. You, there was no favoritism. The children needed help. You were there. Family needed help. You were there. You took care of them. This is this is the chief, and you can get paid for this. Hmm. You know, you. In other words, you were taking care of them. The reason why they chose you is because you had the ability to acquire 
what they call the wealth, which is the hides, the horses, the food, because we had no monetary thing, you know, and we had no money that involved in any of this. It's all the generosity and how you are, how you exhibited yourself. And and those are the qualities that you stress as right. qualities of the character right. of Sitting Bull. Um, and again, that's a contrast to this image of him as this warrior um, alone. You talk about his compassion and his fortitude of spirit. And what I always he- hear coming through is that, that he was always seeking wisdom and not not merely victory or power in that sense. Um, right. What are your... What do you think of in terms of stories that you know about him that you cherish that that contain that to demonstrate that character? Well, you know, there was my mother told me the story when he was a young boy, when he was still, you know, because in our culture you always take your son to to your brother to have him raised because mm-hmm. the authority figure is a little different, and when he. Uh, first went on his buffalo hunt. This is this was one of the ones that really, as a kid his age, and she was telling me this, and I had no idea how what I would have did when I was six years, seven years old, of when his first time, he went in there and he, he, he killed this buffalo, this big buffalo bull. And his uncle forewarned and said, why didn't you take the cow that was closer to the edge? Because a buffalo spook that could run the horse down. And, and the young boy said, yeah, I've seen a cow, he said, but I seen his little calf. Hmm. He said, if I kill the cow, he says, that little calf would sure perish too. So he said, I went after this big buffalo. So then he told him, he says, okay, so he showed him what to do with when you when you take the buffalo. So you you take out a part of its liver and you, you eat the liver. That's that's in respect to the spirit of the animal because his, his flesh is going to give your people nourishment. And it's every part of him you use, his hide, his horns, his head, his, you know, everything is spiritual. This his is a survival. buffalo head right here. Right, there's mm-hmm. a buffalo skull there. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is what he what he told him to do. And then afterwards he told him, go get your mother and, you know, help uh, prepare the meat. So he went back to the village and got his mother. And as she came out of the, the teepee with all her uh, knives and, skinning tools and stuff and he stopped her and he says There's, he says once you do the butchering he says can you cut off some of the choicest pieces of the meat he says and give it to this lady who lives over here two children he said her husband passed away he died in an accident and he's nobody provide for her so he says you know help her this is his way of contributing to their welfare without being asked this is how your generosity is your compassion you should know this before you know, you see people who need uh, assistance or help, and you see them. Mm-hmm. And it's a a nonverbal communication within you to go help them. And they don't have and, to ask you. And this was a pattern that marked right. all of his life. Right. That's that's one of the that's one of the the stories that that I always try to to live by. You know, in my life now and. But the the difficulty about it now is if you try to be generous and compassionate to people, then on the on the other hand, they try to take advantage of your 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 good ways. So there's a there's a real thin line mm. between you know who you should be able to help and who will just you know want want to want to use you as a as a source of you taking care of them. 
you know, they're, they're, after a while they don't want to help themselves because they say, well, we'll go to you, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in a way, I can understand that also because of the difficulties of the Native people now, you know, against the racism and stuff where they can't get employment, gainful employment to support their family. So, you know, I can see the, the that part, but if you keep doing that, then after a while they just depend on you. You don't want them to be dependent on you. You've got to be, help them to get, stand up on their own two feet, but you don't want to always take care well, of them. So compassion takes different forms, right. right? I mean, what is compassionate? It's not always in the immediate instance just to give somebody something. Right. But that doesn't mean, but, I mean, yeah. But in, in his day, mm-hmm. you know, the people understood this. But now, in this time, it, it's a little more different, I you know. See. I wonder if you would talk about, um, here, here's something else that I think in broad terms people know about um, Indian spirituality, whether they really comprehend it or not, that there is this that the sacred world and the natural world are not separate realms, that, that what is sacred and that, that, what, that, that the natural world is itself somehow sacred and, and intertwined with, with that s- spiritual sensibility, um, with your understanding of what is spiritual. Um, and, that, and that came back to me, and I would say it better if, you, if you'd like to, but I mean that came back to me as I thought again about Recovering this sense of sitting bull as a spiritual leader, not just a military leader. Um, because again, his defense of these lands was, was of a sacred space. Right. The land itself. Right. Uh, See, we still believe that even now. I mean, I do. That the earth is a spirit. You know, we, that's all we address in our ceremonies. I always address her as Inamaka, you know, as Mother Earth. And then you even go further as uh, Grandmother Earth because she's been around for so long. And she's a spirit. And all things that grow are spirits, the trees, the grass, and the foreleggers, the wing, these things that crawl, they all have a spirit in them. You know, they're not all just moving around for or anything, you know, I mean, it's just to have a spirit in them, just like the rest of us. And in our culture, they always tell us we have to take care of these things. All living things, we have to nurture and care for them. We don't go out there to destroy it or take its life, you know, like go out there and, and kill a, an animal just to be because he's, you know, like him, he's, he's intruding on you. You don't do that, you know, because you have to learn to, to live in this environment with them, you know, because we're all on this earth to, to, to care for one another. Everything is here for a purpose. Everything is created for a reason. Mm-hmm. And you, but you do hunt and you do kill animals. But there's purpose in the way that's done, and right. in the and in in how that is used or that is that right. The, you know, you 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 hunt that. You know, the deer, the elk, the antelope, the buffalo, because it's for food. But you also honor the spirit of the animal before you even, you know, go out there and, and take its life. Because you, that animal knows it's here to, to nurture you. You know, the story goes back. You know, it's just a little story. And I also seen this in the, in the NASA photograph. They always told us about this great race around the Black Hills at the, at the, end of cre- at the creation time. You know, they 
creator came out and was wondering, he asked him, he asked him to his creations, who's going to consume who, you know? <laughs> so it was a race between the four-leggeds and the two-leggeds, the man and buffalo, deer, elk, and antelope. And they had this great race around the Black Hills. They're going to run around it four times. In that last run, whoever crosses the finish line is the winner, and he will have to consume the flesh of the other. So the race was on. And the one leading the pack was the buffalo. He was because he could run. But what sat on his on his horn was a magpie. And just as he got to the finish line, the magpie jumped off his horn and crossed the finish line. So that proved that the magpie had two legs. So the two leggeds consumed the flesh <laughs> of the four leggeds. <laughs> and they said from and there was the story was told to me and, and there's this little ridge around the Black Hills on the outer edge where the great race was. Mm. You know, the traps. Those are what you saw animals. in the NASA yeah, photographs. Yeah. <laughs> so, mm. you know, a lot, of these, a lot of these stories are like, you know, they're, they're not fairy tales, but they're the stories of, of our creation and, and what happened, you know, to, to our people and how things happen. And, and you know, it's just like uh, you're... Uh, stories from Europe, you know, about the the Hansel and Gretel or the the wolf and the three little pigs thing stories, you know, kind of basically like that. But ours are are telling you a story about why huh. the do's and don'ts and, and what we do, and and a lot of these things are shown to us through these stories or told to us through these stories of of you know how how we evolved and how we survived and how we are still surviving and how we should be as people to honor and respect the earth and all living things on it. I like an ancient Roman definition of myth, that a myth is not about something that never happened, but about something that happens over and over and over again. Right. And see, this, there's, a, there's, a, there's a concept in, in our culture that we have these instruments here, the, the, the pipes, is I was wondering about the Americans, you know, well, not just the Americans, but the world, that they live in history. You know, they have, they're always studying history. What happened, you know, 100 years ago, or what happened 10 years ago, or what happened last year, or 10 years ago, whatever. And, you know, they always got it in these books. And, you know, and I asked this question to my anthropologist in Notre Dame, and I said, in, in Eastern Michigan University, you know, I had a lecture with them. And I asked him, I said, what would you do if all your books, your rules, regulations, policies, guidelines, and history books are gone all of a sudden? How are you going to function for tomorrow? Well, you know, they give me this blank look. I says, I feel this pipe. I sing my songs, and I ask the creator, help me. What can I do for tomorrow? How am I going to make it through tomorrow? Because it's the unknown. Tomorrow is unknown to everybody. That's the reason why they have to live in their history. Mm. But with us, it's tomorrow is another day. And how are we going to deal with tomorrow? So we have to ask the guidance of the spirits with this pipe. Say, help me. With the song I sing, with the prayers I offer, and the smoke that I send, my prayers to the Creator and say, tomorrow... How are we going to function? How are we going to survive? How are we going to make it? 
And if you really have faith and belief in this, things do happen. Things that are almost impossible in your mind in the beginning come together eventually. And a lot of this comes in with the with the, the two sides. You know, you have to have your your female input with her wisdom. You know, when you're you know, because that's the reason I have this pipe. My wife doesn't need that. Hmm. You know, she can. She has this, you know, inbred in her, and it's really, you know, she makes me feel stupid sometimes. You know, because you know, I I I have no understanding of something she does, and and I get shocked. You know, I said, you know, I don't say that I'm really shocked because I am, but I don't want to say that to her. To, <laughs> you know, make her feel like you know. But uh, she knows, you know, she knows that she doesn't have to really do anything. That's why I say, you know, I always include her in what I say because she's my my mentor. She's younger than I am, but she's still my mentor because I have to depend on her sometimes and most of the time, I guess, in what I say and do. And But it balances us. You know, mm-hmm. she has this one way and I have my way of surviving. And protecting and whatever else you want to say, you know, I don't, I don't want to go out there and shoot anybody for protection. I just need to go out there and sit there and negotiate terms of who I am, and maybe we can survive with each other. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if we'll, we'll ever overcome a lot of the issues in this world anymore. I mean, what's happening? But you know, I always tell people, you know, your money doesn't mean nothing in the spirit world. You can have billions and billions of dollars. When you die, you go to the spirit world, you're wobbling each other as anybody else. Wobbling each other, you're just as poor and common as anybody else in the spirit world. And there's no color there. You don't look at each other for what color you are. You go there as the spirits you were before you inhabited this body. And, and to understand that, you have to have faith in yourself. And you and your family have had a pretty remarkable few years. Um, um, as the Smithsonian has identified you as the, the what, what do you say, the, the closest living blood kin to Simple. Right. The, the, the lineal descendants. The lineal descendants. Um, and it, from what I read of your accounts and have heard of your accounts of it, it, it it's almost like... Um, it's almost like a reconciliation with your grand, great-grandfather's spirit or sort of bringing his journey full circle in a sense because you and you had a physical manifestation of that. You had the repatriation right. of his leggings and some of his hair. And I, I wonder if you would tell me, you know, about that and what that's meant to you. Well, I think, I think the, well, when we, we first seen it, I didn't really believe that this was anything would do anybody anybody would do anything like this because we never knew that that t- taken a lock of his hair or his leggings was it the US and military who took the it was the the post surgeon at Fort Yates in 1890 who did that his name was Debel and he was a surgeon but he he was they didn't have a mort- mortician so he was you know doing two jobs at once and and in in the report that Smithsonian had the letter that he wrote he said this body was a sitting bull, and well, he didn't really recognize him because his face was so disfigured. His, his own people beat him to a pulp. But on the other hand, 
it had this little braid that comes out at the top of your hair. That's where eagle feathers are tied to. I see. He took a scissor and cut that off. It was about that long, about eight inches long. And then he took the leggings off the, the body. And that's how he took them as souvenirs. In 1896, he donated them. He put them on loan to the Smithsonian Institute, but he had no descendants. So the Smithsonian had them all the mirrors. And under the, and then the, the, the government came up with NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Repatriation and Protection Act. And when they came out with that, then they had to return all, hmm. uh, you know, religious items, body parts, and all that back to the descendants or to the tribes. So that's when they started doing. So they research. had to find you. They right. had to determine that you were the person to receive this. Right. So they they went four years on me because I have my family tree here. Hmm. I have all the documentations to prove who we are. And see the the world. Most world and most United States people think the relatives of Sitting Bull live in Standing Rock Indian Reservation. He's killed there. He was murdered. He never was enrolled there. And he was never, there's no relatives of him there. The only ones that are enrolled there in Standing Rock are the murderers or the betrayers, the descendants from them that are enrolled there. And, you know, the book and the DVDs tells how we, how my ancestors, my great grandmothers left there and ended up in the Badlands and ended up in Pine Ridge. And, well, you know, this is how we established our connections to Sitting Bull. And Bill Billick found this out. He researched it, and he did everything. And he could not come up with uh, with anything to dispute my family tree. So when the repatriation happened, it was, it was I think it was December 7th, 2007. We were at Washington, and we signed. they signed all the documents, whatever needed. And they gave us the hair and the leggings. And the only... Closest uh, thing that really touched me was what my wife said. They asked, they said, What did you, how do you feel? You know, like you just did. And she said, When we walked out of the Smithsonian Institute, she says, My grandfather's going home with us. And that was more than enough for me to say, Well, now he's away from this place. You know, he's home with us now. So December fifteenth, two thousand six, we did a ceremony here with the hair and the leggings. And can you tell me I about that ceremony? What, what? Well, we we I brought in my 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 friend. He's a medicine man, and he's a Sundance leader. And I asked him if he could do this, and he he was all nervous. You know, mm. he said, "I've never done this before." And I said, "I seen you. I said, I have a ceremony." He said, "No." I never actually brought Sitting Bull's spirit into a ceremony like this. Invite him. So I told him, I said, well, I says, you're humble. I said, I'm humble. I said, I think we can make it through this. So we did, and, he, and the spirit of Sitting Bull was here, and he acknowledged that the hair and the leggings were his. And I asked him, I didn't know what to do with them. What should I do with these items, right? Well, he told us to put them leggings away, you know, for safekeeping. You know, they're not to be put in a museum or for show because they've been sitting at the Smithsonian. And the hair, he said, he needed to, we had to burn it because it was his. Well, during this, before this time, a DNA ancient DNA specialist from Denmark, Copenhagen University, was here. He wanted to know if he could do a DNA on the hair. And we said, "Well, we we'll have to. I can't. I can't give you permission." I said, "It's not my hair." <laughs> so we asked, and the spirits give him so much of it—about two, three inches of it. 
cut off the end, he says, and, and you know, he kind of said, I know who I am and I know my grandchildren are here. But, you know, this is the scientific thing, you know, the world. They wanted to know, so he said he allowed him to. So he's having a heck of a time with it, though, because the Smithsonian coated the hair with uh, cyanide. That's how they preserve it. It looked just like it was shiny and like this, like it had just been cut off. Mm But so now he's he's hoping to have the results by the end of this year. And why did you have to burn? Why did the rest of it need to be burned in the ceremony? Because it was his. It was his, and it didn't belong to me or nobody else. And, and in a spiritual way, it should be buried. But It was almost like your burial these, right. all the, this right. century and more, more he later. He says, no, it's, it goes back. And, and what really amazed me was, you know, we burned the hair and... and uh, my wife and I were gonna. I says, "Where are we gonna put this now?" <clears throat> well, we established. We we know where he was, where his area, where he was born. It's not on the Grand River and Standing Rock Indian Reservation. It's south of Miles City, Montana, about maybe ten or fifteen, maybe twenty miles. It's a little state park there, and there's a little creek there called Pumpkin Creek now. What used to be called Fullhorns Creek. And it used to be Fullhorns, Sitting Bull's uncle's favorite camping place. It's a beautiful place. And so we went out there, and I, I mean, Sonia and I decided maybe we should take the ashes and just dump it out there, you know, in because this is where he was born. So we went. It was in July, I guess, when in the summer, and we pulled in, and we stopped at the park, and we started walking. And I was carrying this little uh, container with the ashes. And I happened to look down, and there's laid this rattlesnake. It was probably three, four, maybe five feet long. It has rattles about that long on it. It was laying there, and my wife almost stepped on its head, and it was probably about an inch or two from its head. And she yelled, and I yelled, we jumped, and the snake, I said, is it dead? Because it wasn't moving. But you could see its tongue every now and then it come out. So she had her camera, so she took a picture of the snake. And I said, man, I said, What's, he ain't moving. So we just, you know, so we went on. And I did a ceremony out there, sang a song or two, and then I, you know, offered tobacco and threw the ashes out there in the field along the creek there. And then we came back and he was gone. The snake was gone. So we got back in the car and, you know, this year we were talking about it, you know, to my friend, the medicine man. And I was telling this to the board members of our organization. And, and the medicine man told me, he told them, he says, you know, he said, Sitting Bull was our most humbling, the most knowledgeable spiritual man of his time. He said, those of us who practice, who live our religion, our our spiritual way, he says, we haven't even scratched the surface of what he knew and what he did, what the sacrifices he did for his people, the compassion, the generosity he had for his people. He said he he would die for his people. And he said, not only the people, he said, but for every living thing on this earth we're talking about. Mother Earth and all the living things on this earth, he prayed for their uh, survival at the Sundance. And he says, when you were walking through there, he says, and that snake knew that ashes you had was the ashes of his hair, so that even that snake humbled himself and laid still. He said she could have stepped on that snake's head and it wouldn't have did nothing. He said that's how much humble that snake gave to that hmm. ashes of that hair. 
And he says, when you, th- when, when you did the ceremony through it, he left. After the ceremony, he says, he left. And he said, this is example of what the animals and the trees and the rivers and everything hold respect for this man. And, and, and on, on my term, I was looking at it and I said, man, he left me some deep footprints to walk in, you know, because of who he was. And, and to try to exhibit and try to live his life in an honest and truthful way, it's difficult now as it was in his time, you know, because he had a different time, different era from me. And I'm having a heck of a time trying to to live this way in a society that doesn't understand my people. But I think hopefully the tide is turning a little bit where those that want to understand how we survived this long, you know, are coming around to to see. Do you also feel that there's a way in which in this 21st century world where you've also been to Finland, I know, as you said, you've been to Notre Dame, I mean, um, that there's possibly a way in which that spiritual legacy might, you know, have a reach that that you you couldn't have imagined. Um. Well, you know, this is this is another one that that really goes back to when he was his first Sundance. I was talking about that in my book, where he in his in his trance that he was in, he went to through his life stages. And his teenagers, he's walking through this uh, prairie, and he heard this voice calling for help. So he went over the ridge. And he's seen this wolf laying there with two arrows in its side. Somebody shot the wolf. And the wolf told him, he said, boy, come here and help me, he said. So he went and took the arrows out of his side and dressed the wounds, stopped the bleeding. And after he prayed for the wolf and stuff, the wolf finally got up and he started to walk away. And as he walked away, he turned back and he looked at the boy and he says, he said, boy, he said, for helping me, he said, the nations will know you just by your name. And I guess he didn't realize that the world was going to know him just by his name. You know, example was, I was at Eastern Michigan University, and there was this guy, he had a, he was a professor, he was an uh, Iranian guy. And he sent one of his students over, he went to talk to me, so I went over and told him, sure. So he came over, he was a really humble guy. And we're talking there, and he told me, he says, you know, he says, my home country of Iran, he says, you can go into the middle of the country. Huh. I mentioned Sitting Bull's name, and the people know who he is. He says, my people, he said, respect people who stand for their values and their beliefs, and they're murdered for it. And he said, he was murdered for his beliefs and his strengths and what he stood for. He said, he didn't give in. He says, that's an honorable man when you do that. So I always wonder, you know, that wolf really was was <laughs> predicted something to him that he didn't realize, I guess. I mean, I didn't, I understand now, but, you know, he probably didn't realize that the world in, in this 21st century is going to know who he is just by his name, you know. And yeah. it's amazing that I really have to tell this stories in a humble way, you know, his story, because I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, say something that wouldn't wouldn't sit right with him. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Because you'd know about it. Yeah, I would know about it. Yeah, you would. You would let me know. Mm. You know, I think that. I think that's. A, I think this is our conversation. But now we'd like to maybe look at what you have here and have you tell us and maybe some. There's some other questions, um, and we can just have a conversation with you. Sure. Is there anything else you'd want to say that um, feels important that I haven't asked you? I feel like it was a wonderful, it's been a wonderful, I mean, I know that we could talk for 24 hours, but. Um, no, we, I, don't, I don't really, I think you pretty much asked the things that, that I wanted to, good. you know, get out. Great. You know, basically, it's a, you know, that he would like to be known as a sun dancer. It's, you know, basically what I, I'm doing, you know, now, mm-hmm. telling the people who, want to know about my grandfather. He said, he's not a chief, he's not a missionary, he's a, he's a sun dancer. And also, I always try to re-educate the, the American people that we're Lakota. I'm a Lakota. You know, I'm not an American Indian or Native American or a Sioux Indian. I am a Lakota. That's just it. And you need to get back to the basics of identifying nations by who they are. Because our identification of who we are identifies us as, as distinguished us from the other creations on this earth. Lakota is means we're allied to all living things on this earth. And other nations, you know, like if you know your language, you know what they mean. It's like the Cheyenne, they call themselves Tistis, they call themselves the human beings. And other nations, I know they told me the, the two-legged, you know, it, it distinguishes you from all the other creations of who we are. So I think Cherokee means something like that, too. It's like they're the human beings or the two-legged. So we need to we need to let the world know that we're not Indians. We're, you know, we're right. so that So that this understanding needs to be right. matched by new language, right. which, of course, is, means everything. Right. Because um, we're not... Uh, my, my my thing is, you know, people always tell me, oh, isn't the little big one? They said, Custer was supposed to be the greatest Indian fighter of the plains. And I said, oh, yeah? I said, yeah. I said, well, he must have went and fought Gandhi's people because when he came up here, he fought against the Lakota, the Cheyennes, and the Rappos. <laughs> a little bit different from being Indians, you know? Right. <laughs> no, it's just a little inside joke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little humor. <laughs> Do do you um, do you guys, Trent, Nancy, Mitch, are there things you'd like to ask while we're sort of on mic, or do you think we could? I was kind of curious. Um, are there variations on the Sundance uh, according to um, certain leaders within um, the Lakota community that that exists in different ways now as as it's lived? Well, there's only one way. Before you, and, sorry. Do you oh, you have. Radio? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I should. Okay. Um, so, so are are there variations on the Sundance? There's only one way of doing it. It's just that, you know, nowadays, it just kind of went off. You know, I and I and the medicine man that I work with, we talked about this a couple of times. You know, there was usually there's just one Sundance in each nation. You know, if they did it, each tribe. But nowadays, man, they have 
couple of hundred Sundances in June and July, you know, and August. And each guy has their own thing, you know, of, of how they're doing it. And it should only be one. And if they all believe in the Sundances as it should be, you know, they should all respect and support one for one Sundance. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is this is another one of the issues that that we have too many guys who claim to be spiritual leaders or medicine men. And I can tell you, it's just like being a chief. A real true medicine man or spiritual leader doesn't want to be because it's a difficult life. You can't say no to things. You, know? you can't have a wife and family because you're always on the move. Okay, and like you said, it's not something you run for. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not. I mean, you're chosen to do this as a young kid, as a child, little kid growing up. And a lot of them guys run from it. You know, they they start drinking or drugging and everything, and they try to avoid it. But it's eventually it catches up with them. And they have to either become devoted or they end up, not surviving it, surviving their life. Because the spirits will snatch them back to the spirit world. They can use them there more than they can here. So it's really a difficult thing, you know, that these guys are portraying themselves as spiritual leaders and medicine men. And a lot of them don't know how to speak their own native tongue. You know, they don't know how to speak Lakota. Hmm. So I always ask, how do they communicate with the spirits? Because the spirits that come to our ceremonies don't speak English or anything else. I mean, they don't speak American English. They speak every native tongue of the world but this language. And I asked them a question one time. I said, why? You know, I mean, there's no whys, but in modern society, you always have this why. And they said the American language is a backwards language. It has too many meanings in one word. Hmm. So, but then the Americans tell me that I, my language is backwards. But then I look at other languages around the world, and they're just like mine. You know, like we say, Baha Sapa. Baha means mountain and Sapa means black. So it's, they say, oh, you're talking backwards, but it's not. It's the Americans who talk backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Related to that, when we were talking earlier, you were mentioning that there's no such thing as great-grandfather in Lakota language. And I was hearing in the conversation sometimes you refer to sitting well as your grandfather or times as your great-grandfather. So okay. Okay. Um, so you, you sometimes refer to Sitting Bull as your grandfather or your great-grandfather. Or do these categories, the way we say great-grandfather, does, does that not really apply? Well, I, I was just saying that to for your benefit. Mm-hmm. Because if I say he's he's my grandfather, well, then you you wouldn't you'd think he's my grandfather. But he's my great-grandfather. But in the Lakota language, we say Tungashila. Tungashila is... Grandfather, and there's no distinguishing how many greats or anything. He's your grandfather. We even acknowledge the creator as grandfather. You know, so right. everything is you know is identified as a grandfather or or unchi. Unchi is a grandmother. You know, it's not a great or great great. You acknowledge the mother earth as unchi makha. So she's a grandmother earth. So it's just you know. Okay. I was just saying that, and to benefit for okay. you and your All right. Well, that is that's that's important for me to know. Right, Mitch. Did you want me to repeat some things? Okay. Okay. All right. 
So let's, you want to talk about these things? Does that make sense, Trent? Sure. Okay. I just, I'd love for you to, um, is it okay if I get off mic? You want me to stay on mic? I guess so. Okay. It's not very natural. All right. Okay, so we have something, you have some, you've laid out some things on the table. We're here in your living room, and I'm, I'm assuming that most of them, if not all of them, are usually someplace else, but they're here together. So tell me, um... I wonder if you'd go through each object and tell me what it is and what it means spiritually, and if it has a special significance, special link to um, to Sitting Bull. That would be interesting to to know. Okay. Well, the first. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it might be helpful to have those things in your hand. Um, I wonder if you could just reach over and grab the thing that you're talking about, so that um, you can kind of handle it and show it visually. Okay. So if it's for radio, then you say. Um, if you wouldn't mind, would you just um, pick up the piece that you're talking about? Yeah. If you can, if it, if it makes sense. Okay, these are our two pipes. One of them is from red cantlinite, and the other one is from a black pipe stone. It started out gray in the beginning, mm. and it turned black as you shined it up. And this one here is, is normally the one that uh, most people have, would have pipes. And this one here is, is for special ceremonies. It's from, from my understanding of my medicine man who told me this was, this is a thunder pipe from thunder beings. So this pipe here is going to be dedicated to my organization, the Sitting Bull Family Foundation. And this is my own uh, personal pipe that I use to do my ceremonies, my own ceremonies and prayers. So the, the, this bowl is made out of this black stone, and, and the pipe stem is made out of ashwood on this one. And this one is pipe stem. The bowl is red cantlinite, and the stem is cedar. So there's the differences between the two pipes. Is one is my own personal one, and one is going to belong to my organization. And your personal pipe is that something that you might use every day? Yeah, I use this pipe was given to me in the Sundance. And there's a real long story behind my my journey to the Sundance. I was telling you, but at the end of I didn't have a pipe when I went to the Sundance, and this was given to me, the Sundance, by my friend, the medicine man, to use. I thought he was just loaning it to me, but mm-hmm. at the end of the fourth day, I cleaned the pipe out real good, and I wrapped it back up, and I took it back to him. And he told me, he said, the last round we had, the last uh, purification we had, the sweat, he said, the Spirit told me, he said, that you have been through really some difficult times in your life. He says, you suffered through alcoholism, drugs, war. And he says, but you turn your life at this Sundance 180 degrees around. You're facing life in another direction. And he says, you earned the right to have this pipe, and he gave it to me. So ever since then, this pipe's been with me. You know, I've always used it for everything. You know, my ceremonies and humble sun Sundancing and I go to a purification, I take it, or I do my own ceremonies here 
in, in a prayer room I got downstairs. And uh, so that's basically this, what I use this for is that. And um, this one here is going to be for the, for the organization, as I said. So that will be for maybe special ceremonies, or will it well, really? Whenever we uh, going to have meetings, we'll. I see. Fill it and mm-hmm. set it in front of the, the board members and the, the whoever is going to be part of our organization. The truth, honesty, integrity, has to be here, and we see the agreements with this pipe. And you don't want to go wrong against this pipe when you fill and smoke it. Okay. And this is, and this here is a tamper. You know, when you, oh, all right. when you smoke tamp it, it, you tamp it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is what we fill the pipe with. Okay. The tobacco. And this, and that's a buffalo skull there. It's a. Uh, when you ceremony, you always have the buffalo skull there because of the person who brought us this pipe. Her name, again, goes back to a woman. So a white buffalo calf woman brought us this pipe to the man. So, And then she comes from the Buffalo Nation. And the Buffalo Nation feeds us, our people, in, in days of my grandfather. So it's basically everything... Is, is pointing to the buffalo. So the skull is here in honor when I do my ceremonies of the white buffalo calf pipe and significance of its flesh that we survived. So this is what... Do you know where this, where this buffalo skull came from? A friend of mine gave it to me. You know, he's, he didn't say where it came from, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of them anymore. You know, you can purchase them at these flea markets over here. You know, because a lot of the these buffalo farms around here, they, they, I don't really agree with how they do it. Like beef, you know, they, they just kind of slaughter them for the meat, but because right. it's a healthy meat, you know, it's, that's what we eat most of the time here. It's me and my wife, we have buffalo meat or elk meat. You know, it's rarely have too much beef, but. Uh, the skulls are being sold now to at these flea markets to I don't know how much to sell them forty fifty bucks and uh, to artists and whatever they draw on them and stuff. But that's what the friend of mine gave me this one for was as as a as a token of his appreciation for sharing some thoughts with him. And mm-hmm. I didn't have a buffalo skull so. He says, I'll give you one here. He said, so it was it was good. He did it in the goodness of his heart, so I appreciate that. And I mean, I use it in a real respectful way. And then the other thing is, oh, okay. this is a rabble I use in the ceremony. It's, it's spirit, my spirit's living this. It, it, it rattles. And this is an eagle wing that I used in the Sundance, or I use it now to, you know, to smudge my house. I burn sage and I push the smoke around my feathers around the house here to myself. So basically, this is just a, a simple items that I use to for my prayers and my ceremonies. So I mean, this is just for myself. I don't I don't 
perform ceremonies for anybody. I'm not, a, I'm not a medicine man or a spiritual man, so I don't do that. Would your grandfather, Sitting Bull, have used um, these exact kinds of, of, of objects? Yeah, he would have. You know, he had his own pipes and he had his own buffalo skulls. In his time, they had you know, plenty of buffalo skulls because the buffalo were numerous. He had one for the Sundance, he had one for his ceremony, he had one for various uh, ceremonies that he performed. Now imagine he had a rattle also. Everybody has one of them rattles. Some of them have more. You know, it depends on your your vision and how it comes. And this is my my drum here. Mm. It's just a little hand drum that I use to to, you know, do my ceremonies songs. Do you guys have questions? Um, as far as the interview? Yeah, or, or any of this. Um, mine was just some of the um, photographs. Of yeah, and, I haven't even looked um, at The biography you just wrote. You noticed a bunch of family photographs, and I was wondering if there are any that just kind of struck you, or uh, ones that you would talk about, or Oh, it just, you know, I mean, those are photographs of my my, my mother and my father and my gran- grandmothers. Do you, have and, a, do you have a favorite one of your great-grandfather that you, that you, that you kind of like, that you've seen? Well, not really. They're all, they're all, to me, they're all the, the, you know, the likeness, the image of him. The most popular one is that one hanging on the wall there, you know, the, one with the two feathers, you know. And um, in them days, they always held their pipe because, you know, when you're getting your picture took, because, you know, the that's the reason why Crazy Horse never had his picture taken because the t- it says it takes your shadow, it takes your spirit, the photograph. So we always have, now I'm on protection, you know, in my around my neck all the time because I know people want to take pictures of me and, stuff like that. So I was having this protection to keep my spirit intact with me so I don't have to hold my pipe. See, that's another thing with... In in the days when my grandfather was around, you, you, you couldn't just have these pipes like this because when a wo- woman is going through her menstrual cycle, it infects your pipe, so you don't want to have them around. Uh, when, they, when they know this, and there's a ceremony that came with the Seven ceremonies is called Ishnanti Awichi Law, which is a ceremony for the women. I don't know. It's a woman's ceremony, so we don't, men don't know, but it basically said she lives alone. She, and, and I have some feminists that used to, and they <laughs> got on me pretty heavy about this one time. I said, it's not that they're evil or bad. It's that the women respected the pipe because every teepee had one. Every man had a, a pipe that was sitting like this inside the teepee. So when they started their menstrual cycle, they, they lived over here in a little camp by themselves. Just the women were there. Other women took care of them, they fed them and everything. That's how they have it every month. So that's where their wisdom is so respected because they have to they purify every month. Everything that bad thoughts, bad feelings, they come out there. And they get renewed and their their renewal is their wisdom, whereas we men we don't have that 
ability to do that. So we purify ourselves through the, through the purification ceremony, which is sweat lodge with the with the grandfather of the rocks and water and steam to purify your spirit, to try to acknowledge the gift of this woman who has it every month. It just comes natural to her. Whereas we have to seek a vision, stand on a hill with this pipe and seek and understand what a woman has every month. You know, we have this... We have to we we have to dig harder and suffer harder to gain just a, a, a fraction of the knowledge of woman's wisdom. So this is so that's where the two sides against their spiritual way of life kind of balance each other in a way. Is is Sitting Bull wearing something or holding? Is he holding his pipe in this photograph? Yeah, he's holding it. Oh, I just can't across see his, it. Yeah, if you got the whole picture. He's it's laying across his right there. Okay. And then, you know, there's others that he's holding the pipe. Every photograph he, you see in here, he ha- he's holding that pipe. You know, it's that's, that protects your spirit from, or your shadow from being captured. And he always called uh, D.F. Barry the little shadow catcher because he is always taking pictures. <laughs> that's what they gave him as a name, is a little shadow catcher. And I have a... A friend of mine from uh, Wisconsin, he gave me a, a business card at D.F. Barry's back in. He, he dated, I think it was June 1890, 1889. And D.F. Barry signed his name on the front of his business card. On the back side, my grandfather has his signature. Huh. And, you know, they, he had that at his cabin when he was killed. And uh, D.F. Barry went and took everything out of that cabin, even the doorknobs off of his cabin took him back to Superior, Wisconsin for safekeeping until all the hostilities died down and he was going to return all these items back to the relatives. And somewhere along the road between then and now, the somebody broke in the, the storage room and stole a lot of this stuff. And uh, Tom Heskey went in there and he found his business card in. You know, somebody didn't grab it, so he found that. So he, uh, so about a year ago, two years ago, he he met me at the little big one. He gave me that little eagle feather and a little toy that belonged to, you know, Crowfoot. And I don't know, I can't remember what else he, he returned back to me. So I took him to ceremony, and the spirit acknowledged those were taken from his cabin, you know. So nobody knows what happened to the rest of the items. Somebody, they they stole, you know. So it's a, you really got to watch what you got, you know. I mean, what you, what, what you think is nothing is somebody else's treasure, you know. So, I mean, I always say, you know, what, my pipes are, you know, they're instruments that I pray with. And, you know, when we pass away, we make the journey back to spirit. Well, it's either passed on or it's, it's you know, usually give it to somebody else who's worthy enough to carry the pipe. It's just an instrument. It's not nothing special, you know, that you should uh, take as a souvenir. And that's what the misunderstanding in our cultures, you know, the cultures that the Americans and us. I mean, I would never go dig out your grandfather's gravesite and steal his gold teeth, you know. I mean, that's, oh, man, that's that's something that I would never, I couldn't I couldn't see myself doing something like that to anybody's, you know, no matter who who I am, who they are. Got to have a lot of respect for the 
the people who lived once on this earth, you know. You have to respect these things. And to understand that, you have to really understand who you are in this existence as a as a person, as a human being. Um, you mentioned D.F. Barry. Um, if you need to re-ask this, or if it's part of um, the One of the photographs that I think he took that I really like because of all the accounts I've read of sitting of your great-grandfather is that um, he's this man with this great presence. He had charisma, energy, came in, he commanded that. And there was this one photograph that, um, uh, I think he's wearing goggles. You yeah, got a sense of like, there was a man behind that. It, because what I grew up and learned, it just, you know, it's this historical figure that's removed. You got a sense that this was a real person that had feelings and had a dynamism that, um, um, I just wonder how you think about that as, you know, as, a, as maybe a grandson sitting in his lap type of thing. Um, well, you know, the, the the goggles thing, you know, there's a lot of them that had them on. I don't know, maybe it's, they tested your eyes or something and they said you needed glasses or something. I don't know, you know. <laughs> but uh, maybe he did need glasses or his eyes are kind of poor or something. I don't know, but... Uh, I, I understand what you're saying, you know. I mean, I've seen that photo, too, you know, with him wearing them goggles-looking things. But he wasn't the only one. There's other ones that had the same things on. The kind of, I don't know if they're glasses or what. why they had them on, you know. And there's so much things that, that were taken, you know, like when Sitting Bull was in, they took him to Bismarck, and he, they, they got a photograph of him wearing a crucifix, cross, you know, big one. And everybody said, oh, he accepted Christianity. He didn't. You know, that they were trying to, you know, bring him into Christianity. It was Christianity. staged. It was for yeah. the photograph. The, the crucifix belonged to Grey Eagle, his, his uh, brother-in-law. And see, he had accepted Christianity. And he was trying to get Sitting Bull to, to, to you know, become a Christian. And he's a traditional you know, he had a culture, he had a way of life, and he wasn't going to just give that up to, you know, for anything. So they, it was just a prop, you know, that he had on. And uh, there's uh, so much, you know, discrepancies and everything about the stories, you know, that that, we're, that my 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 goal is to to educate the, you know, the public now that that there's the real truth about who my grandfather is and, you know, not uh, what's written by D.F. Be- I mean, uh, Bastel and Utley. Because these guys had vivid imaginations. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you ever read them books, you know, they're really... They, they, at times, they didn't do justice for my grandfather, and at times, they made him look too much like a... like something he really wasn't, you know, so... I I don't know, you know, it's really it's, it's it's a chore, you know, it's a job, you know, that to to educate the unknowing public. Well really the unknowing public is they don't really know who we are. And we're in year two thousand and nine. And I was in Michigan visiting public schools there and the teachers didn't even know anything about natives. Never were taught. <laughs> 
And I had more interest from them than the students, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, and in Texas, the same way. That was Donner and a uh, friend of mine from the Little Bighorn Battlefield as a ranger. They invited me to Temple, talk at the Temple University. And uh, he wanted me to come on his television early morning, like Good Morning America type of thing in Texas and uh, in Waco. So we showed up there at 4 o'clock in the morning and for three minutes, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and the anchor girl comes over and she's, before the camera came on, she looks at me and looks at Mike and she says, so what we're doing here? And Mike says, well, he said, I want to introduce my friend Judy, you know, and she says, oh, she's good. She says, uh, about what? And he says, well, he's uh, great-grandson of Sitting Bull. She says, oh, yeah? He said, yeah. It's okay. She says, was Sitting Bull from Texas? And he said, no. She said, well, did he have anything to do with Texas? <laughs> I said, <laughs> and so we had, he had to educate her while, you know, before the camera came on, and I said, wow. You know, this is, this is, I mean, the Comanches were done, and a lot of people don't even know Comanches lived in Texas, you know, in that part, you know, and so it, it's, 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 a, it's a chore to, to try to educate those that would like to know who we are, that, you know, we want to come out from the stereotype of being the noble savage or bloodthirsty killer or, you know, I mean, they, they asked me questions, man, your people, they raped white women. And I said, man, you know, you don't understand our people. These guys lived a spiritual way of life. That was one of the worst things, especially a man in Sitting Bull's stature, his position. He was a shirt wearer. When you wear a shirt, you're a consul. You're, you held certain office in, in kind of in Obanichi and the consul. And you didn't do that. You were not, you did not, do derogatory things to a woman. You know, this is one of the, as I was telling you, you you believed and respected the woman's wisdom and her knowledge, so you just could not, didn't do that. And then I had had another lady call me from Utah. She told me that she was related to Sitting Bull and she was blonde, blue-eyed, and I said, I don't know. I said, I don't think that happened. And she said, you know, she says, uh, you sure? She said that we're not related. And I says, I don't think so. I says, if, if we were, I said, I would know it in my family tree. She says, well, you know, she says, I, I think we are. She says, you know, she says, he probably had, you know, he, he probably had an affair. She says, you know, they did that back in the days. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to argue with her, so I just said, well, I don't think we are, you know. I didn't want to really, you know, I don't think that happened, you know, but. So then she hangs up the phone on me, you know, and I haven't heard from her since, but she's on the Internet still claiming she's Sitting Bull's great-granddaughter, you know. So she said her grandmother's name was Alicia. And I I said, Alicia? (laughs) I don't know. I don't think that works, you know. (laughs) I mean, I hate to be really mean and nasty to somebody, but, you know, I just don't want to be... Also, you know, you don't want to really say that you know, this, these things just didn't happen, you know. Alicia, you know, that's, that's not a name that fits in a Lakota name thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like we've taken a lot of your time. We should, um, what, do we, what do we need? Okay, let's do that now. Let's-
Oh, okay. Do you have something, Nancy? No, I'm all. Oh, okay. Trent, do you have something else? 